0: Hi there, I'm Adam Spencer, and this is Telstra Behind the Mic. A series of ideas, discussions and exchanges focused on insights, inspirations and innovations. The COVID-19 restrictions have had a profound effect on all aspects of our lives. And this year more than ever, the word resilient has been bandied around as a way of describing how we need to be. Resilient at work, at home, with life. Well, understanding that mantra is the specialty of our guest. Today, we meet leadership strategist, author, venture capitalist and former monk. Welcome to the one-of-a-kind world of Kamal Sama. Change
1: does happen, but it doesn't happen in a straight line. And what I've found is this, is that sometimes we resist what can help us the most.
0: When Kamal Sama speaks, he asks you to be present. But that's not as easy as it seems. We have family, work colleagues, clients, business plans, your phone, my day's going too quickly, this meeting's going too slowly, you know the drill. Life is an amazing way of getting in the way. He only asks for your attention, as he may have a few handy clues to optimise your approach to all of that stuff, to make you more resilient to the pressures of life. Scarcity of time makes us feel very stressed.
1: And I think stress is bad, because being stressed
0: is the opposite of thriving. Jamal's approach to life is a little bit different to the rest of us. He'll tell you what's a teen he was, and I'm quoting him here, a dorky Indian kid with no friends, who became a gun youth rugby player and even dreamed of being the first Indian Australian wallaby. Well, surprise, surprise, that didn't quite work out, but he's had an amazing life. He's journeyed through being a strategist, venture capitalist, author and even monk. So he's born in India,
1: uh, came to Australia when I was four years old. Grew up in the lovely lush Blue Mountains. Uh, dorky Indian kid, no friends. Discovered rugby union. Go figure. <laughs> you get really popular. <laughs> um, started playing a lot of rugby and got very popular. Uh, started chasing too many girls. <laughs> My parents didn't know what to do with me. They thought, ah, we can fix this guy. So they sent me to become a desert monk in India. Uh, in a monastery for seven years, skipped high school, um, 12 to 14 hours of yoga and meditation a day, came back to Australia, was 19, couldn't go to school, went to TAFE, uh, did an honors degree in economics, MBA, joined a company called McKinsey, funds management, venture capital.
0: Yeah, that's kind of me. You, 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 there's a quote of yours. I've got a couple of your quotes here today. I find them quite powerful. I'm not an expert in resilience, I'm a student of resilience. And in some ways that captures a a quite challenging and and traumatic moment in your life. Are you comfortable telling us what what that quote in some way reflects? So life was great until it wasn't. Um, When
1: my life turned around was with the death of my first child. When she died, I went from feeling fantastic and wonderful to couldn't, couldn't get up in the mornings. Mm. Um, And I really struggled. I could have easily become an alcoholic, a drug addict. I could have lost everything. And I almost did, I think. I was lucky I had something in my background, which was my monastic training, my yoga, my meditation that I went back to. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I think I'm a student of resilience um, is for two things. I think... I've been a huge um, student of philosophy, both Eastern and Western. And time and time again, it's easy to live life when things are good. (laughs) When you really discover yourself is when things are not so good. And that's why I've been fascinated by resilience, both from an Eastern perspective and Western perspective, from a molecular perspective, from a genetic perspective, from an endocrine perspective, from a mental, psychological, philosophical perspective. And I love reading all of that stuff. The thing I want you to unlearn today is this, stop managing your time. A lot of people are addicted to time management.
0: And and here's the thing, a lot of people are oppressed by time. The ticking clock of life is something that Kamal wants to rage against. We've all heard many times, work to live, don't live to work. But Kamal Sama wants to take that even further. So time management is great, but it's so last century.
1: (laughs) So we need to move from time management to energy management. What I mean by that is that... People are oppressed by time. You ask how you are really, really busy. We, you know, we are sucked dry of uh, of time. You know, even if you give somebody an hour extra in the day, they feel this sense of lack, this sense of scarcity. So we need to shift to going from time management to energy management. Energy management is making sure that you give your best energy to the most important tasks and the most important people. Energy is like a resource, but we whittle it away. Like, I think the worst thing that you can do is check your email melts in the morning. For me, because my best energy is in the morning. Or say, for example, you know, I, I'm really pumped up to meet a new client, but when I go home, I'm depleted and exhausted. That's not fair to the people I love and care about.
0: Yeah. Daniel Pink, for example, talks about the, the, the right time of day to get to know when people are at their peaks and their troughs. He's talked about this in this very Telstra s- series of if you've got a team that functions at a certain time, don't go and schedule them over here. People have to be aware of their own sort of their, 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 their own rhythms. Yeah, I think we are ebbs and flows. We are cyclical animals.
1: And so we have to understand the cycle. And when you understand your cycle and other people's cycle, you can
0: work with that rather than working against it. Is that what you mean when you say energy proceeds? results? Tell me more about that.
1: So here's the thing, you know, in a lot of organizations, they say, oh, you got to meet your numbers, you know, going to make so Mm. many sales calls, or you got to do X, Y, and Z, and you don't get the results. It's because if you get on a sales call and you don't have the right energy, or you have a meeting and you don't have the right energy, then you're not going to be able to transfer that energy to the other person. My belief is that we're purveyors of energy. The reason why I like hanging out with you is I get a buzz out of the at the end of this session, I'm going to feel buzzed. At the end of the meeting with somebody, they should feel that buzz. And I think that's what we sell. We don't sell our time. We sell out energy. Is that something someone
0: can work on? Because there, you know, there are some people who are probably better at sucking the energy <laughs> out of a room or a meeting or a team than, than giving it back. What can that sort of person do? or What can that person's colleagues do to enhance that, that, that person's ability to trade in energy? It's a big question. I think the first step
1: is awareness. You have to take, you have to have some awareness. Most people, you know, there's people that suck the energy out of the room. Mm. They have NFI. They have no flipping idea of (laughs) whether they take the energy out of the room. That's number one. Number two, you gotta take accountability for your energy. So, like I could do this, you know, imagine this, and I come home, I go to my my family, hi honey, hi kids, I'm tired, I'm exhausted. But the next minute the client rings and go, Hey, how you doing? Like, what the? So that's not fair. So I think I can take accountability for the energy I bring into a meeting. I I take accountability for the energy I bring home. And that first 30 seconds that you go into a meeting, that you go in, they're sacrosanct. They're really important. They determine the efficacy of the next evening or the next hour. And then number three is master your energy. Most people haven't mastered their energy. What do you mean by that? So, um, you know, if I'm in a bad place, the last thing I should be able to should be doing is going to um, a meeting, or the last thing I should be doing is going home. If I'm feeling depleted and exhausted, the last thing I should do, or I've had a crap day, the last thing I should do is open that door at home and suck the energy out of the room. Maybe I could spend ten minutes in a park before I open the door at home and just centre myself and make sure that when the family comes to talk to me, that I'm there present to listen to them.
0: Kamal, you tell a great story about the head of the American Psychological Association seeking out a monk to get the secret to life itself. He approaches the monk. Take the story from there and what's the message?
1: So here's what happens. So this this psychiatrist wants to understand why is it that psychiatrists have such crappy lives. So he does all this research.
0: and he Because finds the stats are in there. their stress levels, their divorces, all sorts of stuff. It's, t- it's a tough job being a psych.
1: It's a tough job. And, you know, you think that psychiatrists should have amazing lives. They know so much about the brain and the mind. So he does all this research from all the professions and he finds out monks and nuns have the highest level of kindness, joy, compassion, all that kind okay. of stuff. Rocks up to the monastery. The psychiatrist sits down. Monk totally ignores him. First hour goes, second hour goes, third hour goes. Psychiatrist have really ticked off, can't deal with it anymore. The monk walks up and starts to pour a glass of water for the psychiatrist. Keeps on pouring, keeps on pouring until it overflows. The psychiatrist goes, whoa, whoa, what are you doing? It's too full. Nothing's going to go in. The monk speaks for the first time and he says, you're right, no matter how good my stuff is, you are too full. What I find is that shift happens in our lives and it empties us out and we can either choose to put things into our cup that are empowering or disempowering. Unfortunately, sometimes we're too full of ourselves that we don't allow the good stuff in. And it's funny, we live in an age of abundance, but we still are so oppressed by time. And a scarcity of time makes us feel very stressed. Being stressed is the opposite of thriving. I believe that stress is the asbestos of our century.
0: So lack of structure leads to bad time management, which impacts on relations in and outside of work, which leads to chasing your tails to catch up, which leads to bad time management. You can see where this is going, can't you? It all leads to stress.
1: Some of the research from uh, the Harvard Mind Body Institute says that between sixty to ninety percent of all visits to doctors are due to stress-related illness. Sixty to ninety percent. Yep. What's the biggest killer in modern-day society? It is heart disease, directly related to stress. Stress. What we're finding is, um, you know, predictors of cancer, diabetes are stress-related. So I think there are three types of stress. And people, you know, I see a lot of people going, yeah, come on, I'm not very stressed. And I go, "Uh, not true. (laughs) (laughs) And the three types of stress are this. The first one is conscious stress. You know, the conscious stress, I call this the garden variety stress. You've got a stress headache, tight neck and shoulders. That's conscious stress. Subconscious stress, you might've seen this in people. Um, They come to meetings and they're continually shaking their leg and you go, What's the deal with that? Or clicking their pen or biting their fingernails. That's subconscious stress. The third one is unconscious stress. And, you know, when I'm doing presentations and stuff like that, I ask people, have you ever experienced this? You go to sleep, then you wake up more tired than when you went Mm. to bed. Mm. What is the deal with that? And the thing is that we're still unconsciously stressed. Or here's the other thing that's worse even. You go to sleep and then 3 o'clock in the morning go, bing, and you're bright as a bunny, Mm -hmm. that is unconscious stress. That stuff is really hard to deal with because you're not aware of it. And some people say they're they're not stressed, but they still manifest those kind of things.
0: Because some amount of stress or some forms of stress are positive for the human condition, aren't they?
1: Yeah. There are two types of stress, um, what you're talking about. Um, It's eustress and distress. And they have very different Cortisol and adrenaline type type profiles. The type I'm talking about, it's not eustress. I'm talking about distress. Distress is the chronic stress. We're designed for eustress. You know, like um, sh- long, you know, long lows with occasional highs. What we're not designed for is long highs with occasional lows.
0: When you go on holidays. Okay, so so in a work environment, in a work environment, in a work environment, presentation has to be made tomorrow. Bang. Boom! Nailed it. Good. Back. Keep chugging along. Chugging along. Chugging along. That's 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 a that's a, a positive stress moment. Or is that- that, yeah, kind
1: of. But it's more like this. You know, oh my gosh, I'm worried about my job. I'm worried about the numbers. I'm worried about for you know months on end, and then deliver something. I'll oh, go on holidays. Ha! Ah, In the first two days of the holidays, you're sick as a dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's because all the adrenaline, noradrenaline, cortisol's leached out of your system, and your body goes stuff you. Um, so that's what I mean by. Uh, the distress, that chronic stress that stays at peak levels, you're grinding your teeth, you're not being able to go to sleep properly, that kind of crap.
0: The last few months have seen a a lot of added stress and people thrown into a situation they simply didn't see coming. What, What have you observed about work practice, life practice over the last couple of months that might be applicable going forward? I've seen two aspects um, that have really come about. Um, and
1: it's two ends of the spectrum. One is loneliness, people are feeling incredibly lonely. And the other one is overwhelm. And I think it really depends on your family situation, if you've got a working home office, if you've got kids at home, and or your homeschooling. And these two ends of the spectrum are interesting. Um, the loneliness piece uh, is interesting because I think I think um, Pascal said uh, all ills of man start with his inability to sit in a room by himself. So we mm. we struggle with loneliness, but I think you know we have to explore loneliness, solitude, and aloneness. And for some people, they've had to explore it um, in this time. I used to travel a lot. And loneliness was hard for me, but now I use it as periods of solitude and aloneness, which is very different to loneliness. So that's number one. Number two, overwhelm. I I think what a lot of people are discovering is that, you know, with overwhelm, you need three things to work on that. And we talk about the three R's and that's, you need good routines, you need a good rhythm and you need good rituals. A lot of people are trying routines, but they're missing out rhythms and rituals. Let me just explain to you. Yeah. So routines, you get up in the morning and you do exercise and that's unconscious. Um, rhythm, like we we like rhythms in life, you know? So we are, we are cyclical beings. That's what we started to talk about that initially. Um, but you need to have a rhythm. Like a lot of people are losing their weekends <laughs> because they're working all the time. A rhythm is is a weekend. Uh, A rhythm is a date night. A rhythm is where you do something differently, but that gives you a rhythm to the week, the month. And the last one is rituals. And rituals are interesting. Rituals are hyper-awareness. So one of the rituals we've started in our home is at six o'clock to make that distinction between work and home is we light candles throughout the house. And that shifts the
0: work to, to home now. And you've said that people crave certainty. And we're in a more uncertain world in some ways than ever before. It touches on that, some of that ritual and rhythm stuff. What, what are your observations of, of the way this has impacted on people's resilience? Wow. I think people are learning more about their own levels
1: of resilience through this period. Um, there's some amazing research around people who win lotteries versus people who, win, who survive cancer. Um, the people who win lotteries immediately after they're incredibly happy. <laughs> two years post, their level of happiness and joy is actually dropped. It's the opposite for cancer survivors. So initially, when they're diagnosed, their level of happiness goes down. But two years later, they seem to their level of happiness is higher. And the reason they've kind of hypothesized for this is because when you have a traumatic event, you discover what's Really important to you. I'm hoping that through this period, people have discovered more of what's important to them, that they discover what life is all
0: about. You're the chairman of Amicus Digital and the Are You OK think tank. Is it too early to say what Are You OK is seeing about people's? state of mental well being at the moment? One of the things I find is that we're all
1: going through a shared experience and our levels of uncertainty are increasing dramatically. I have a decompressing buddy and I think it's really attuned with the okay
0: message. A DCB. <laughs> DCB. Tell me about your DCB. I'll tell you follow. what my
1: DCB is. So, um, you know, my business has been impacted greatly because we do training programs, I do keynotes. Um, so we've gone from really good to, oh, crash, crash and burn. But, you know, so are other people. Mm. And I kind of feel almost indulgent to talk about my fears and my mm. stresses. Mm. So, what I did early on in the piece, I called up one of my buddies and I said, hey, I would like to just have a bitch session with you every now and then. Mm. And so we do have a joint bitch session because a lot of people are saying, oh, you know, you have to look on the bright side. Yeah, you do, but also you've got to acknowledge that you're feeling some of these emotions. Mm. And I don't think you should suppress your emotions. I don't think you should decompensate on another people, on another person, your emotions. I think you should decompress. So with my buddy, I've been... Having a vent, get it out. Having a vent, connecting with them and... I have permission to talk about my challenges with them and vice versa. So
0: when it comes to the world post-COVID, whenever that might be, what's, what's one human element that you've been empowered in, in hearing about that can carry us in and through?
1: So I think this has been a wake-up lesson around leadership. We need the leaders that are humble enough to listen to the scientists, that are humble enough to listen to the medicos, that are not just fixated on votes and populist theory. I think if there's one thing that we can learn, and one of the things that the leaders around the world are really responding to them, they have made sure that the scientists and the health workers are superstars. What I want to come out of this is like yourself, Adam, that the scientists are out there. I think we should be having parades. I think we should have kids saying, yeah, I wanna be an epidemiologist. I wanna be a virologist. I wanna be a geneticist. I think we are now learning that we are not economies, but we're communities. And what builds thriving communities are not the investment bankers, are not the politicians. They're the scientists, they're the doctors. They're the people that we're gonna need uh, to, to help this species thrive. So to understand how to thrive, you must understand stress. You must understand these two. And I think that most people don't understand how stressed they are. So what I want want to do today is get you to stop managing your time and start getting you to manage your energy. And that is a huge mindset shift.
0: There are still times, realistically, when people are going to encounter stress. You're a big believer that you have to move from trying to avoid stress, it it is going to happen, to developing resilience to stress. What does that mean for an individual to be more resilient to stress and how is that the sort of thing you can develop? If a muscle is not tensed, if
1: it's not stressed, it atrophies. In the same way, our philosophy, our psychology, and our physiology need some tension to grow. So the more you put challenges on yourself, that challenges your psychology, your physiology, and also your philosophy. So as you go through life, the more minor challenges you can put, the more bench strength you will create
0: as opposed to just being faced occasionally with a, a, a gigantic block you just can't get over because you've not, you know, you you've practiced in that zone before? Yeah, it's like just sticking to your comfort zone. The best way to not be
1: stressed is sit on your couch and <laughs> not do anything. Uh, what we need to do is we need to put ourselves into challenging situations. Get up and speak, like speaking in public. <laughs> Bloody hell, that's challenging. Go and do it. And when I started to speak in public, I knew I was scared, but I did more and more of it as you would have. And then you start to increase that muscle strength. You increase that bench strength. And then you look forward to having those, um, you know, going on stage. In the same way, if you don't want to have a challenging conversation, have a, a little bit of a challenging conversation. They get bigger and bigger and bigger. Then you're more likely to have more challenging conversations.
0: Okay, so give me, give me, give me three handy tips. This is from Kamal, the former monk, corporate strategist, would-be wallaby. Any way you want to pitch yourself. Give me, give me three handy tips that I can incorporate into my daily life and my work life. That that that, that are the essence of your message.
1: Fine. Look, so I'm a reformed monk. Yep. <laughs> so take this with bias. <laughs> uh, number one is I think it's really important to rest your mind, not just numb it. People have been, I've heard you say that before, rest your mind. Don't just numb it. Walk me through that. So resting your mind is through meditation, through contemplation, maybe going through a walk in nature. Numbing your mind is watching or binge watching Netflix or having a drink to calm you down that doesn't rest your mind it numbs it initially it feels the same but it's fundamentally different in terms of its long-term consequences
0: when it comes to meditation a lot of people think i'd love i'd love to have enough time to be able to dedicate 20 minutes a day to meditation but people i know who do it say trust me you spend that 20 minutes at the front of the day you earn it back across the day being more relaxed, more efficient, less stressed. You create more than 20 minutes of benefit in the day if you take that 20 minutes to start. Is it that simple an equation? It is It is
1: very much like that. But I, the one thing I would disagree with is don't start with 20 minutes, start with two minutes. Yep. <laughs> Put your time on for two minutes, sit, just be still, listen to the birds, listen to the traffic, whatever, just for two minutes, see what happens. So I think two minutes is a great place to start.
0: Kamal, tip number two, what have you got for us? Tip number two
1: is focus on connection, not just interconnection. We're an incredibly interconnected world. WhatsApp, Facebook, LinkedIn, it's Instagram, it's never stops. Try and spend some time on connection, connecting to yourself and connecting to the people that you really care about. Put the phone away, pause, and be present to them.
0: What's your final takeaway message, Kamal? Ah, okay. I think what can
1: radically change your life is make sure you give your best energy to the people who will come to your funeral. I'll repeat that. The best way to live an amazing life is give your best energy to the people who will come to your funeral. A lot of the time we give our best energy to the people who are important, but from a long-term resilience perspective, they're not going to be there for us. So if you can come home and light up it up like you're going to the most important meeting in your life,
0: that will be powerful. It's been a wonderful conversation so much to get through final thing I need to know before I let you go what position would you have played as the first ever Indian Australian Wallaby?
1: Uh, there's no, no, no question, I'd be the
0: hooker <laughs> Kamal Sama, thank you so much A big thanks to Kamal Sama for bringing his insights from across the many facets that he represents A loss to the Wallabies? was a gain for the rest of us. You can also check out the other podcasts in this series with great guests. Bernard Salt on the growth of trust in our culture post this hibernation of COVID-19. Charles Dewig on how your habits, both good and bad, can work for you. And Daniel Pink, as he unearthed the secret motivation behind perfect timing. I'm Adam Spencer, and this has been Telstra, Behind the Mic.